um, estrogen-rich environment. Um, today is men's retreat, and we've got a bunch of our men that are up at Alpine, not Alpine, up at, uh, in Payson at camp. And uh, so there's good news and bad news. The good news is it's an amazing camp. The guys are having a great time. I was up there until yesterday afternoon. The bad news is when I first got there, we were sending two of them to the hospital. Now, should I tell you who they were? Or should I let you wives just kind of think about it for a while? Oh, that's right. Well, Todd Motrin uh, sprained a finger playing ultimate Frisbee. By the way, these things never happen at women's retreat, you know. It just doesn't happen at women's retreat. And then uh, Rich Wallace uh, blew out his knee, probably an ACL, playing ultimate Frisbee. And, but they're okay. And they got back from Friday night uh, from the emergency, and, and they were experiencing a great retreat. So pray for the guys as they come back this afternoon. Uh, it was just a wonderful time. I love being up there uh, with our, our men. So it was a, a great time of fellowship. Well, this morning I would love to pray for you. We're beginning a brand new series and we're going to be studying the book of 2 Corinthians. And the theme of 2 Corinthians is to be encouraged. And so I want to encourage you this morning through prayer. And uh, the best way I know how to do that is if you have a prayer need, if you have either a prayer need for yourself or for a loved one that's not here, um, if you need to be encouraged, if you need um, to be comforted, any of those things, we encourage you just to stand where you are for yourself or for someone else. And I want to pray for you this morning. So just stand right where you are and we're going to pray for you. And uh, uh, those of you who are around these who are standing, would you just reach out and place your hand on them? And uh, Father, um, you have told us in your word that comfort is available in fact, uh, Lord, in the passage we're looking at today in 2 Corinthians, we read these words. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. Father, we don't always believe that. We don't always think that in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our discouragement or depression, it doesn't feel like salvation and comfort. But you have told us, Father, that if we trust in you, if we rely on you, if we cling to you, that you will provide us with the comfort that comes from our Heavenly Father. And so, Father, I just want to lift up to you these brothers and sisters who are standing um, in need of prayer for themselves or for a loved one. I pray, Father, that they would receive comfort and encouragement from you so that they, in turn, can encourage others. I thank you, Father, that uh, you have promised that you are the God who heals. In Exodus, Lord, you've said you are the God who heals. We pray that if there are physical needs that... You would bring healing and help to each and every one of them. Father, we also know, as, as Greg said a few moments ago, that there are times in our lives when we become discouraged with our, our marriages, our children, our situations, our jobs, our finances. And You have told us, Father, that if we rely on You, if we trust in You, that You will comfort us and encourage us in those very difficult times in our lives. So, Father, would you press into those who are struggling today with relationships? And then, Father, if, if there are those here this morning who aren't even sure if they know you, if you exist, my prayer this morning is that they would know you through this word, that they would understand that there is a God who not only is, but a God who cares, a God who comforts, and a God who loves, and who graces us lavishly in our lives. So, Father, we just are excited about uh, this day, the worship we've experienced. And now as we open your word, we pray that you would open our hearts. Um, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And may you bring comfort and encouragement to each and every one of us. We pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people together said, Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, this morning we are beginning uh, a brand new series uh, of messages uh, entitled Be Encouraged. And uh, it's coming from the book that Paul wrote to the Corinthians church, the second book that he wrote. 
2 Corinthians. And um, now the, the book itself has 13 chapters. You can read it in about 20 to 30 minutes, depending on how fast you read. And uh, here's my challenge for you today. I'd like to challenge each of you for the next 10 weeks to read the book of 2 Corinthians every week. Okay? So if you read maybe five minutes a day or read two chapters a day, take Sunday off, uh, you can read through every week uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. And when you do, I promise you that it will really make come alive uh, what I'll be sharing on Sundays and what you'll be studying during the week. So uh, I'd, I'd like to challenge you to do that. Also in your bulletins, would you take out the insert that's entitled Be Encouraged? Now let me tell you what this is for. Uh, the first page, the front and the middle, uh, the ins- inside left, are for sermon notes for today. And each Sunday, as you know, we have sermon notes, and it's usually on a front and a back. This time it's on the front and the inside left. Now, the inside right and the back are going deeper questions. And these questions are designed for you to uh, be in grow groups or small groups, affinity groups, uh, or at home. You can study this as a couple or as a family or as an individual. In any context, these questions are relevant to what I preach on Sundays and what the text says uh, throughout the week. So I just want to, again, challenge you uh, to use these questions uh, these 10 weeks. And if you do, um, you'll be so into this book and so into this teaching that my, my belief and my prayer is that you, your life will be transformed. This is an amazing book. Now, many of you know that while I was on sabbatical last summer, part of my sabbatical was spent in studying 2 Corinthians. I took a class from J.I. Packer at Regent College, um, I, Sherry and I went to a retreat center for four days of quiet where I just studied and worked on outlines and worked on the sermons that I'll be sharing with you. But uh, so this stuff is really in me. Now, Sherry whispered to me as we were getting started, slow down a little bit. Okay, partner, you know, slow down. Okay, okay, I'm going to slow down. But I get so excited about this. I just, uh, it just kind of overflows. And I just want you to, uh, to really experience that as well. So let's begin with a personal question. Are you at this very moment, right now at uh, 11.15 on September the 15th, 2013, are you encouraged or discouraged? In your life, in your marriage, in your finances, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, physically, are you encouraged or are you discouraged? In other words, how would you rate yourself on the encouragement quotient? Well, last Wednesday morning, I was really discouraged. Now, as a church family, we have gone through a lot these last uh, 10 days. As you all recall, last week, um, Jim and Donna Bell's uh, son, Trey, passed away. And then on Monday, Cindy Barton passed away. And then on Wednesday morning, Mike George passed away. And uh, so I found myself Wednesday morning in my office um, trying to work on my message for the following Sunday. And as I was doing that, I was thinking about uh, uh, Jana had just called me that morning at 7 a.m. about Mike, that he just passed away. I knew that Trey's service was that morning. Cindy's service was Thursday night. Mike's service was Sunday night. And I was just kind of overwhelmed. But more than that, I had the sense of, of, of kind of Deep discouragement in my soul. Lord, I mean, we're one church family. We're one expression of the community of God. We are one body of Christ. And we're, in, we're hurting. And our people are sad. And they're discouraged. And, and they're grieving the loss of people that they care deeply about. And, and as I was thinking about all that I had to do and feeling not only discouraged myself, but feeling pain for my whole congregation about how we're going to get through all this, the phone rang and on my cell phone. And I picked it up, and it was, it was, it was one of you. It was a young man in our church. Uh, most of you probably don't even know him that well because he's very quiet and unassuming in our church. But he called me. He said, Dwayne, the Spirit told me this morning that you needed encouragement in prayer. And so... Here I am. I want to pray for you. I want to encourage you. I know you've got a lot on your plate this week, but I just want you to know that we love you 
and we're with you. If there's anything we can do to help, uh, we want to be a part of that. Now, that didn't lessen the load of the work I had to do, the preparation I had to do, but I'll tell you what, it made it so much more it's made much, so much more personal and so real. And so I was so encouraged by that phone call. I mean, every one of us in here understands what it means to be down and discouraged. And God says through this amazing letter, 2 Corinthians, be encouraged. So throughout this uh, 10-week series, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to know what it means to have your face lit up with the comfort and encouragement of God. So how about you this morning? Are you discouraged, encouraged? Discouragement is no respecter of person. It doesn't mean that you're a good Christian or a bad Christian or a non-Christian. It just means that you're discouraged. The fully devoted follower of Christ, as well as the brand new believer, as well as people who are far from God, all suffer from periods of discouragement. In fact, listen to this quote. You seem to imagine that I have no ups and downs but just a level and lofty stretch of spiritual attainment with unbroken joy and equanimity. By no means. I am often perfectly wretched and everything appears most murky. End quote. So wrote the man who was called in his day the greatest preacher in the English-speaking world, Dr. John Henry Jowett. He pastored leading churches. He preached to huge congregations and wrote best-selling books, but he had that time of, like the psalmist says, darkness in the night. And here's another quote. I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. Now, that's an amazing quote. They say, well, who is that guy? He needs to be in a hospital. Well, that was the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, whose marvelous ministry in London made him perhaps the greatest preacher that England ever produced. And the writer of this book, 2 Corinthians, the writer of this letter, the Apostle Paul, this is what he said. He said, I am crushed and overwhelmed beyond my ability to endure. And I thought we would never live through it. Now, he was writing not only for himself, but for Titus and other of his journeyers. But here was a man who recognized that his spirit and his energy were completely sapped. Have you ever felt that way? And when you do feel that way, how do you receive comfort from the Father? How do you receive comfort and encouragement from other people? This morning I'm going to show you two video clips, one now and one at the end of the the message. And uh, in each case, well, let me tell you about, there's a little movie that came out a few years ago. Um, it was not very long, but it was a really good little movie. It was called Soul Surfer. How many of you have uh, heard of that? Okay, if you haven't seen it, go to Netflix. If you can find a blockbuster that's still open, you know, find that. But find this little movie, Soul Surfer. It's a true story about a Christian girl who was attacked by a shark. She lost her arm, and she was, as you would expect, tremendously depressed. And in this clip that I'm going to show you now, uh, there were people around her, her doctor and others that were trying to encourage her, but especially the moment that she has with her father alone and how he tried to bring encouragement and comfort to his daughter. Let's take a look. Hey, how's my favorite patient? Say that to everyone. I mean it when I see you. I'll wait outside and see you. So I understand your feelings of discomfort here. Well, that's normal. There's going to be a lot of pain because of the trauma that you've endured. Not to mention the fact that you've lost over 60% of your blood. You're going to be feeling kind of lousy for the next few days, kid. Now, here's the thing, Bethany. The things that you're going to have to learn to do differently is extensive. But the good news, those things you're not going to be able to do, small. I'm so proud of you. tell you something. She is a living miracle. Thanks, David. Nice sleepy head. 
I love the uh, reality of that. When can I surf again? And he said, soon. Well, how do I know that? Because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. In these weeks, more than anything, I want to encourage you to receive God's comfort and His consolement, His encouragement, whatever you're experiencing in life, whatever circumstances bring to you, that you will recognize and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you can do all things through Christ Jesus. Paul was this incredible teacher and an incredible servant of Christ. Now, at this time when he was writing this, he was, of course, writing from shortly. He was at Ephesus shortly after he had left Corinth. But Paul was going through these same kinds of struggles, probably similar to what Brittany was feeling in the movie. See, Paul had this incredible ministry that God had told him that he wanted him to do, and that's to make disciples of all nations, of all people. And he was doing everything in his power that he, to do that. But there was this, in spite of all the things that he went through, shipwrecks and, and imprisonments and beatings and everything else, there was this nagging physical ailment that Paul experienced. We don't know what it was, but it was something that was just bothering him constantly. And three times he asked the Lord, Lord, I can be a better servant of you. I can be a better apostle. I can be a better evangelist if you just take this thorn in the flesh away from me. And how many times have we said that to the Lord? God, I can do better work for you if you'll just cure me of this cancer. God, I can do more for you if you just heal my marriage. And we have all of these feelings. And Paul said, God, help me with this. And God said three times the same thing. He said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. God says, I can use you better when you're weak than when you're strong. I can use you better when you're sick than when you're healed. Now, this doesn't always work out like this, but Paul is saying, listen, I I, I think I can do a better job. And God said, no, what you need is not more energy, not more physical strength. What you need is my grace. Now, in the NIV, it says, my grace is sufficient for you. And the word sufficient means literally um, complete in every way. My grace, for what you need right now at this moment, whatever circumstances you're in, whether you've lost an arm, you've lost a loved one, or your marriage stinks, or whatever else, my grace is sufficient. It is complete for every area of your life that you need. That's a promise from God. My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Through these weeks, we are going to be told over and over again by the Apostle Paul, and you're going to be told over and over again from this pulpit, these simple words. Be encouraged. Don't be afraid. God will comfort you. Be encouraged. So when I begin a new series, a new um, a book of the Bible that we're studying, uh, it's always important to give you some context, some, some uh, a common ground so that we all kind of understand uh, where we are. Uh, let me tell, for those of you, and we have some people here that are new, I don't know you, but um, let me tell you a couple of things that are pre, kind of presuppositions. Uh, one of them, and this is because we respect you even if you're not a Christ follower, you're not a believer, you don't know about God or the Bible, all that. But here's a couple of presuppositions I have when I do these kind of messages. And the first thing is this, that this book, the Bible, um, is different than all other works of antiquity. It's completely different than all other works of antiquity. There's some great things, whether it was Chaucer or Shakespeare, some great works of, of, of literature. But this is different, we believe, as Christians, because the Bible says of itself that God literally breathed his life into this word. So this is God-breathed. So God's truth and his breath, his life, is in this word. So that's one presupposition that we have. And the other presupposition is this, that um, when we talk about something that happened 2,000 years ago, and all of these things that took place in Second Corinthians took place 2,000 years ago, 
Um, what we believe is that because that word is God-breathed, that the teaching that was done then is relevant today. I know it sounds weird, but 2,000 years later, the things that were happening that those people were experiencing and feeling and believing and finding in terms of being discouraged and hurt and broken and all of those things, that the things that they experienced and felt then are the same things that we experience and feel today. So those are kind of the two presuppositions uh, we have when we look at this. So let me give you some context. And I think the best way to start any context is with Jesus, right? Good place to start. You know, can't go wrong with that. So we start with Jesus. Um, the, the early people that put our calendar together, at least the English calendar, kind of got it off by a few years, like zero, right? Before Christ and A.D. should have been zero, but really it was AD, uh, B.C. 4. They got it wrong by four years. So when Jesus is crucified and resurrected, it's A.D. 29. Okay, so just keep that in your head. Uh, within a generation after uh, Jesus was born, AD 29. And uh, during AD 29, Jesus lit, did his ministry uh, starting in 26, and then he finished in 29. He was crucified. He was resurrected. And this isn't just my belief. This was the belief of many people that saw it, experienced it, both Christian and non-Christian writers, so we know it actually happened. So he's crucified. And then we find him, and, and by the way, there were over 500 people that saw him, after the resurrection, so they knew he was alive. But then Jesus was going to go to heaven to be with his father. It's called the Ascension. And uh, he said, I promise to leave the Holy Spirit behind with you, give you strength, but I'm going to go to heaven with my father. And so Jesus was on the Mount of Olives, and there's 120 Christ followers, disciples that had been with him, some of them for three years, some of them recent converts, but 120 people, men and women, who were so gifted and so fired up to do the work of God that Jesus said, okay, here's my job for you, and that job is the same for us today as it was you know, 2,000 years ago. My job for you is this, go into the world with the love of Jesus and make disciples. Let them know that I love them and that I have a way to save them. I have a way to forgive them of their sins. I have a way to give them eternal life. And all of that is through Jesus, the Son of God, who died for our sins. So be sure and tell everybody that I love them and that I want you to make disciples. So they had their marching orders and the same marching orders we have today. And uh, they started marching. And those early days were incredible. Uh, there was We know from Acts 2 that most people... Not the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, not the Roman officials, and not the uh, pagan Greeks that, you know, had other gods. Those people weren't too happy about the Christians, but the normal, common people, they loved these Christians. And you know why they loved these Christians? Because these Christians loved them. (laughs) They delivered the good news of Jesus with love. That was the only delivery system they had. They didn't have anything else. They only had love. So they delivered that. And and so the people loved them. And so things are going pretty well for the first few years. And then uh, then persecution started because the Romans didn't like this all this hoopla, and the Jews hated it because people were now being come, becoming converts from Judaism to Christianity. They were leaving the synagogues, which meant they were not tithing, which meant they were not going to church, and everything was bad. And so everybody was starting to hate these Christians, and it kind of came to a head about 15 years later. So 15 years later, there's this guy, and he's like the number one mafioso, tough guy, Pharisee, educated, smart, sharp, uh, quick-witted, strong, all of those things. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders said, I want you to go out to the team of people and start making Christians miserable. Arrest them, beat them, do whatever you can. In fact, one of them actually got killed. Uh, One of the early Christians uh, got killed. And I want you to do all of this, and I want you to really mess them up big time. And so listen to what we find in, this is, we find out all about this guy, Saul, in the book of Acts. Okay, here's what it says. This is Acts 1 through 3. Saul was one of the witnesses. Now, witnesses to Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr, Stephen's murder, Okay. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. He was, he was he sold out. He said, absolutely, whatever it takes. Imprison them, beat them. If you need to, kill them. That's fine. Uh, and then verse 2. A great wave of persecution began that day. Now, this is 15 years after Jesus descended into heaven. So 15 years, things have been going pretty good. 
But now persecution's really kicking up. Uh, the great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea, Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul, that's the name of this guy, the mafioso guy, Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. So here's this tough guy. He's single-handedly trying to, well, he has a team of people, trying to destroy Christianity. And so he's doing this, and we don't know how long he's doing this. Maybe some people think up to 18 months. So he's really being effective, although the church continues to grow and grow and grow, even while he's doing this. And then one day, this guy Saul is on the road to Damascus, and something happens. Those of you that have been around the Bible know what happens. There's this great light that comes that literally blinds him knocks him on his backside and the light speaks and the light that was shining on him was the voice of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, well, in a few minutes ago, I thought it was a good idea, but obviously it's not, you know, because this is not looking very good at all for me. I didn't even think you were real, but now I think differently. And so Saul was overwhelmed by God, and he was told by Jesus that I want you to go, instead of persecuting Christians, I want you to go and make Christians, or at least make disciples. That's what I want you to do. Okay, that's kind of a shift in your, your, your call, right? And, and so he did that. And listen to what it says. I won't read the whole story. Listen to what it says in, in 9.15. But the Lord said... Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to make my message, to, make, uh, to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So right from the beginning, God said, now, Saul, and they're going to re- rename him, and they're going to rename him to Paul. He said, uh, Paul, uh, you've got a new name, you've got new eyes, you've got a new heart, you've been saved by the power of Jesus, You're going to go out and make disciples, but it's going to hurt. The suffering you're going to experience, you you almost have no idea uh, how intense the suffering is going to be. And he didn't tell them all the details, but we later found out there's shipwrecks and again beatings. And he's eventually he's martyred. He's killed. But there's, uh, you know, imprisonment. All of these things take place. He said, Paul, this is going to hurt because people aren't going to like what you have to say. And basically he was saying the same thing to all Christ followers. You know, when you're a Christ follower, it's going to hurt. <laughs> because we live in this world that we call the kingdom of man. And you've heard me talk about this. We call this the little kingdom, the earth. God says, one day I'll make all things new. That'll be the big kingdom, the kingdom of God. We live in this little kingdom, but yet we're big kingdom people. And so we're always going to be pushed and we're going to be uh, hurt and we're going to be pounded. And it just doesn't work very well. So we know that we're going to experience suffering. And that's what he told Paul. And so then we have um, uh, the, Paul's for, about a couple of years later, Paul's first missionary journey, and that's from 46 to 48, about 17 years uh, after Christ ascended into heaven. And then his second missionary journey was approximately 80, 49 to 52, so still just a, a generation after Jesus. And then we come to uh, Acts chapter 18, and here we find out uh, Paul's connection uh, with um, the church. Here's here's what it says in Acts 18. Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Let me get my spot here. Excuse me. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported them, deported all Jews from Rome. So remember, now the, 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 the persecution has really turned up hot. The Romans hate the Christians, and the Romans just barely tolerate the Jews, and the Jews hate the Christians, and the Jews hate the Romans. So everybody hates everybody, but the, the, the one group that everybody hates are the Christians, the Christ followers. Nero called them the Christians, okay? He even kind of uh, made the name sound funny. It meant uh, those who are dogs. And, and so, so everybody kind of hated the Christians. And so here Paul is, and he goes to Corinth, and they had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers just as he was. So Aquila and Priscilla were tent makers. Paul was. They said, come live with us while you're doing ministry. Verse 4. Each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and the Greeks alike. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall there? 
Paul's in there trying to convince the Jews and the Greeks alike that Jesus Christ is the way. Okay, so that was fun. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Macedonia was another important Greek city along with Athens. Um, uh, Macedonia, uh, Paul spent all his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, your blood is now on your own heads. He said, okay, you Jews, we've been telling you about Jesus for 30 years. You've ignored us. You've ignored us. Okay, if if your answer is no, that's your answer. Okay, live with that answer. And he says, I'm going to go then and preach the good news to the Gentiles. By the way, the Gentiles, that phrase is not only a people group, but it's all non-Jewish people. Okay, so go and preach to those who are not Jews. Then he left and went to the home of Titius Justus, a Gentile who worshipped God and lived next door to the synagogue. I love that. So a guy's living next door to the synagogue. That's who Paul holds up with, you know, so he's real close. Uh, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. So Crispus becomes a Christ follower, and he's the leader of the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul, became believers, and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. By, by this time, when there's a vision, Paul pays attention, okay? After the light thing, he listens, okay? Uh, don't be afraid. Speak out. This is the vision, an angel speaking to Paul. Speak out. Don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack and harm you, from, which is interesting because everyone attacked and harmed him, but we'll talk more about that later, what that means. For many people in this city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half teaching the word of God. So Paul stayed in Corinth from probably 49 to 51 for 18 months. He stayed longer at Corinth than any other city. Any other, now remember, in these cities, he would plant these what we call churches, but they were little ecclesias, little house churches. It was the believers, some going back to Pentecost when they heard the gospel in their own language and going home. So they had all these ecclesias, these church groups in homes in all these cities. And the idea was Paul was going to all of these cities and establishing uh, a, a leadership system. Who's going to be an elder? Who's going to be a pastor? Uh, who's going to be the deacons? Who's going to take care of the people? Kind of established those churches and went on to another one another. But he stayed in Corinth for 18 months. Now, why? Corinth was probably the most crucial city outside of Rome in all of Asia Minor. Why? Well, it had three quarters of a million people, very large it was a seaport town, and everyone knew that seaport towns were kind of the hub or the heartbeat of the uh, area. Um, but it also meant, these seaport towns, that there would be a very cosmopolitan population. There'd be a lot of people moving in and moving out, a lot of sailors, and because and, uh, of the trades and everything, a lot of sailors coming in, a lot of sailors coming in. There used to be a lot of prostitution and a lot of money changing hands. All of these things are unique to port cities. Okay, and we see that today. I mean, if you look at the history of San Francisco, uh, you know, uh, Seattle, San Diego, or the East Coast, port cities always have this cosmopolitan and yet very sinful kind of feel. And that was Corinth. So it was a very critical, critical city. And he wanted to make sure that that church was established well. And so uh, here he is, uh, three quarters of a million people, and the church that was established there was at this point probably two-thirds Greek, uh, Greeks that had become Christ followers, and a third Jewish converts. Uh, now, he wrote a letter after he left uh, Corinth. Uh, he wrote it from Ephesus, and uh, he wrote the first, what we call 1 Corinthians, and there in that letter he wrote things that he really mattered, things that they needed to get straight. Okay, so he talked about um, pressing subjects like idolatry and immorality. And by the way, those two subjects are always the issue of every Christ follower who's ever lived. How do I deal with immorality? And how do I deal with idolatry? How do I deal with making sex something it shouldn't be and making gods someone they shouldn't be? Okay, that's every, every human being has ever had to face that. So those two areas, idolatry and immorality. So they had, he had to correct things such as uh, uh, divisions among the body of Christ, uh, more, more, morality, lawsuits, lack of generosity, um, treatment of the poor, living a godly life. So all of those things that were what Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians, and most of you have read 1 Corinthians, because there's a lot of information there, and there's a lot of teaching that comes out of there in the church, 
And also you have 1 Corinthians 13, which is cool. The love chapter, so everybody likes that. And uh, so 1 Corinthians is very famous among Christians, but 2 Corinthians not so much. So Paul wrote this letter, but then after he wrote the 1 Corinthians, he wrote another letter, not 2 Corinthians. There's a letter that he wrote that was lost. We don't know where it is, if it got burned or destroyed or what, but it's not in the canon, and we don't know the exact content of it, but we know from 2 Corinthians what it was talking about. Apparently there was a man in the church that was very immoral, and he was causing all kinds of problems. He was bringing in all kinds of different theologies and different teachings. He was living an immoral life, and uh, he was a cancer in the church. And Paul wrote in this lost letter that the church needed to deal with him in a loving but stern and strict way and gave outline, apparently he outlined what he wanted them to do to this, uh, this member who was causing all kinds of problems. So that was the letter that was lost. And then some time follows after that. Paul is, Titus goes back and checks in with the church at Corinth. Apparently he was kind of the emissary to Corinth. And Titus checks in and finds out that they haven't done what Paul asked them to do. And they haven't been doing what he asked them to do in the letter, the first Corinthians letter as well as this lost letter. And so uh, he writes them again. And this time we have the book of 2 Corinthians. Now in the book of 2 Corinthians, some theologians think that um, there are three separate books that were put together. I happen to believe that there was just one book that had three subjects. And I believe that because J.I. Packer believes it and he's smarter than I am. So, so that's a good reason to believe that. And uh, so there's three subjects in 2 Corinthians. Let me outline those for you. The first one is Paul wants to restore his pastoral relationship with the church at Corinth. It had been damaged. The second letter had caused a bunch of hoopla in the church, apparently. People were starting to say, well, that Paul, he's just being really hard on us and he's being mean to us and he shouldn't tell us how to treat each other. And they're just kind of on his case a little bit. And I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. And, and so they were kind of, their, their, their love and their devotion to Paul was kind of flagging. And so Paul in the letter, we'll see this in several of the weeks. Paul said, listen, my love for you has never changed. I love you. In fact, Paul talks to them in a way that you don't see in any other letter in, uh, of Paul's. It's a very pastoral, loving, almost desperate. I love you. Don't you guys realize how much I love you? But yet I feel like you don't love me the same way that you used to. So he wants to repair that relationship. The second part of 2 Corinthians is he wants to encourage the church to generosity. Now this comes from 1 Corinthians that uh, Paul asked the church at Corinth, they were a, a wealthier church, not real wealthy, because there was a lot of economic sanctions against Christians, so they didn't have a lot of money. But they, because they lived in Corinth, in a seaport town, they were more wealthy than the church at Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem was suffering. They had no money, no jobs, no ability to even feed their children. And so Paul had asked the church at Corinth, along with other churches, to give a generous offering, donation, to Jerusalem. The church at Corinth said, we'll do it. We'll take an offering. We'll take care of that. But that's one of the things they didn't do. So Paul writes, and he says, hey, listen, you promised to be generous. You haven't been. Let me tell you why that matters. And so that's 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And then the third part of the uh, 2 Corinthians is Paul reestablishing his apostolic authority. His authority as the one who has the true doctrine, the true faith. He's the one that has heard directly from Jesus and he wants them to establish that because in the church, apparently some Greek uh, teachers, some sophists, and some other strange teaching people had infiltrated the church and they were saying, hey, here's another way to look at it. And, here's, and Paul said, no, no, this is wrong. I'm going to reestablish my authority, my biblical authority, and you need to uh, deal with those false apostles that are invading your church. So those are the three books all in one book called Second Corinthians, but all of this is done through the filter of Paul's word. I want to encourage you and I want to comfort you. I know that you're suffering tremendously. This church was suffering, not so much financially, but in every other way. I know that you're suffering. You're, hit, you're getting hit from the sophists. You're getting hit from the Pharisees. You're getting hit from the Romans. Some of your people are being dragged out. You remember what Saul started in taking people and imprisoning them? Imprisoning them? When he became Paul, that didn't stop. 
They just had other people that started doing that, more people. So the persecution was just pounding and crushing this church. And so Paul is saying, listen, I want to encourage you. I want to bless you. I want to comfort you. And that's what this is all about. So when Paul said, I want to comfort you, he meant really several things. The first thing he said was this, basically, I need encouragement from you. Paul said, I'm your pastor. I'm your, your apostle. I, I established this church. I, was, I lived with you for 18 months. I gave you good, sound doctrine. I, I did all of this. I, I did this for you. And, and now you're treating me like I, I don't matter to you. And that really hurts me. So Paul was saying, I need encouragement from you. Encourage me. I have, a, like, like that young man last Wednesday called me uh, a week ago Wednesday and said, I just want to encourage you, Pastor Dwayne. I've got a drawer in my office that's filled with cards and letters and emails Many of them from you, but many from other churches uh, in case, uh, you know, I need some extra help, you know. And they're all letters of encouragement and emails and, and cards. And sometimes when I feel discouraged and I feel overwhelmed, I pick out some of those and I read them and say, okay, I can do this, you know. The church is encouraging me. They're saying, Pastor Dwayne, we've got your back. Let's go. Let's, we're, we're with you. Let's keep going. So we need your, I need your encouragement. Our staff needs your encouragement. We have three full-time pastors, three part-time pastors. We need your encouragement. And that's what Paul was saying to the church at Corinth. But beyond that, he was saying this. He said, not only do I need your encouragement, I want to encourage you. I want to comfort you. I'm your pastor. I love you. Uh, you know, one of his uh, cohorts uh, you know, said, no greater joy can a man have than this, than to hear that his children follow the truth. That's every pastor's dream. Uh, there's nothing that I want more than to hear that the people in my congregation at Hope Covenant Church are following the truth. Nothing breaks my heart more than someone that leaves the faith. And nothing encourages me more than someone who embraces the faith. So we need encouragement from you, but you need encouragement from us. And we want to give you that. But then Paul also said, but I, I, I want you to encourage each other. See, Paul said, I'm not there to encourage you face to face. Titus drops in once in a while. But you, you need to learn to encourage each other. And, and I can tell you this. Um, I've been at Hope now for 13 years. I have never seen a church that is more encouraging and comforting to each other than Hope Covenant Church. I hear about someone that's been hurting. And of course, I call them. I go and see them. And guess what? I found out that four people have already been there before me. We need encouragement from each other. And the last thing Paul says is this. We need encouragement from the Father. We need God's encouragement. We need to understand that we're not in this thing alone. We need to understand that this arm that's been severed by a shark, that this marriage that is dying, that this cancer that is... We need to understand that this isn't the end. That somehow, some way, God is going to make something out of that that is for our good and our benefit, and He wants to encourage us and comfort us in that truth. So this morning, that's by way of introduction. I just want to read you one section from our, our, our first chapter and then make a few comments on it. But this is um, a wonderful section about being encouraged uh, by the Lord. So um, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 11. Otherwise, it's in your sermon notes. We'll put it on the screen. This is the word of God for Hope Covenant Church. Now, you'll notice that the first paragraph is the paragraph that I... I read when we went into prayer. Hear this word. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. Now note that. God is saying, when I give you comfort and encouragement in your difficult times, I want you to turn around that and give that to others. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 5. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with His comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer we are confident that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in the comfort God gives us. And then the next paragraph. We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. And we thought we would never live through it. In fact, 
We expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely on God who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger. And he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him and we will continue and he will continue to rescue us. And you are helping us by praying for us. Then many people will give thanks because God has graciously answered so many prayers for our safety. Isn't that beautiful? Well, in this passage, and I'll just touch on them briefly, he gives us three promises. The first promise is this. God says, I promise to comfort you in times of trouble. He says, I promise that even though you're going to be crushed and overwhelmed, that you can still rely on God. And thirdly, I promise you that if you put your confidence in me, and listen to this, he said, I will rescue you. You say, well, wait a minute, though. But Cindy wasn't rescued from cancer. I mean, Mike wasn't rescued from death. What does that mean? We're going to look at that very clearly because that's implied in that text exactly what God wants us to understand. God says this. Here's a promise. I want to comfort you in times of trouble. Now, these Christ followers at Corinth, were, as I said, were getting pounded by all angles. The sophists, the Pharisees, the Romans, they were just getting pounded. There was this crushing persecution under the Romans. And God says here, don't give up. Because the comfort that I want to give you, and the word comfort in the text is a beautiful word, it means to carry with strength. Isn't that great definition? The word comfort means to carry with strength. That God will literally pick you up with His strength, His strong arm. And He says, I promise you that you will not be left alone. That's the one of the last song we sang. You will not be left alone. I promise you that I will literally carry you with strength. I will be your paraclete. I will come alongside you. I will redeem you. At the worst time in our lives, when our son Tyler was killed, he was 10 years old, back in 1989. At the worst, and talk about being crushed and overwhelmed. Sherry and I couldn't even breathe, let alone live. And during that time, that happened on a Friday. On a Saturday, there was a knock on our door. The word had spread to thousands of people, as you would expect. And a knock on the door. And there was my best friend from, uh, from Eugene, Oregon, uh, Leroy Gibson. Uh, we were best friends. We played football together in high school. And, and there he was on the doorstep. He said, Dwayne and Sherry, I'm here. I don't need anything from you, but I'm here if you need me. If you need prayer, if you need me to wash dishes, do laundry, mow the lawn, I'm just here. And that's that word to carry with strength. What Leroy and others were trying to do to us is literally carry us with the strength of God. We can't do this on, on our own. We can't survive these kinds of crushing burdens on our own. And God promises, and hear this, there's only two things God can't do. God cannot lie and he cannot, uh, he cannot deny himself, okay? And when he promises that he will comfort you, like no one else can comfort you, he says, I promise that I will be there in your life. Sometimes God just shows up beside you and it's like Leroy. I don't know what you need, but I'm here. And I'm here to comfort you. I'm here to love you. God says, I promise you, I will comfort you in times of trouble. God says, I promise you, you may be crushed. You may be overwhelmed. But we have learned to rely on God. That word crushed, is the, the Greek word means it's like an elephant is sitting on your chest. You can't breathe. You don't even know if you're going to survive. If you've seen, if you watch football, uh, you see these guys that are, usually they're hit, hit in the midsection. Now they don't want you to hit their heads or their legs, so now they're going to hit you in the midsection. Well, many times that'll just literally take your breath away. And there's nothing more painful, I had this many times in football, than to not be able to catch your breath. You think you're going to die. You're just, you're just out of breath, but you think you're going to die. People that are overwhelmed and crushed, whether it's finances or depression or a marriage that's not working, you're overwhelmed and, and you have this, like, like the, in, the, in the video with this little girl, Brittany, talk about being overwhelmed. I, I remember as a kid, I surfed uh, when I was a, a teenager and there were times where I'd be knocked over. These were the, in the old days, the long boards. They were like 90 feet long, you know. And so, but you get off, the, knocked off the surfboard. And I remember times when I was knocked down under the water. And some of you have experienced this. And you didn't know which way was up. 
and you're kind of, they tell you to relax and kind of get your bearings, but you panic and you start flailing around. I remember one time I was flailing around and what I ran into was the bottom of the ocean. I thought I was going up, I was going down, and then more panic sets in. That's what that word overwhelmed means. But God says in the midst of that, listen to this, in the midst of that, you can rely on me. And here's the question, rely on you? How can we rely on you? God, I can't breathe. I, I can't live. I can't survive. I rely on you? Well, here's the neat part about this. The word rely on you is connected to something else. He said, God says, you can rely on me because of something. And he says, well, God, do I rely on you because you're going to rescue me? Of course. But you're, I'm going to, you're going to rely on me because I'm the God who raised Jesus from the dead. I'm, just, I'm not just some Greek God. I'm not just some pagan God called Baal. I'm the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And that God is the one that's comforting you and encouraging you in the worst times of your life. And I'm not just any God. I'm the God that raised Jesus from the dead. And that's the God who is in your life and is encouraging you. The third promise is this. You put your confidence in me and I will rescue you. You say, well, I will rescue you, but some people aren't rescued. Well, you know the story from Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel 3... There were three young Hebrew men who were told by Nebuchadnezzar, remember the Hebrews were uh, taken prisoner uh, to, by Egypt, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar said, okay, you three guys bow down to me and to my gods. And they, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no. We only serve one God, Yahweh, the Hebrew God, only one God. We love him. We know he's the one true God. We only serve. We only worship him. And Nebuchadnezzar said, you guys better watch out. If you don't bend a knee to me and bend the knee to my God, I'll burn you up in the furnace. They said, sorry, we're not going to do it. And then the, the three boys said to Nebuchadnezzar this. This is amazing. They said, uh, God will deliver us with that kind of confidence, defiant confidence. You think you're going to burn us up? God will deliver us. But if God doesn't deliver us, God will deliver us. Sounds like double talk, doesn't it? But these three young men knew the difference between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. Sometimes God delivers us in the kingdom of man. And sometimes people are healed from cancer. And sometimes people are, do avoid uh, uh, death and accidents and everything else. But other times God says, you know what? It's time to come home to be with me. You will be delivered. I'll be delivered in the furnace or I'll be delivered ultimately when I open my eyes and see the face of God. And so when Nebuchadnezzar put those three kids in the, in the fiery furnace, he looked down and he saw four in there because the fourth was as the Son of Man. God was present with them. Deliver us, yes, either here on this earth or ultimately in heaven. You put your confidence in me and I will rescue you. That word confidence is a beautiful word. Here, here's what the word means in the original language. It means put all your possessions like you could carry all of your possessions, okay? Your house, your family, your job, all the things that matter to you, you know, that really matter. And you put those, all those in your arms. And the word confidence means this, that you take all of those things that really matter to you and you give them to Jesus. You say, kind of here, here, you, you take all of those. Because you have absolute and complete confidence that everything that matters to you, He will take care of. You have absolute, 100% confidence that everything that matters to you, He will provide a way. There's a pastor that lived 100 years ago. His name was Charles Allen. And Charles Allen used to keep a, a little... Remember what those uh, snow globes? How many remember snow globes? Okay. Young people don't because you can't plug them in. But uh, anyway, snow globe was this little thing that had a little globe and, and some of them had like a little man and a landscape. And then when you'd shake it up, it would like it would snow. And uh, Charles Allen, when he got discouraged and when his life was in a lot of pain and we lost his wife and other difficult times in his life, he would pick up that little snow globe and he would shake it like this. And there would be all snow in there. And he couldn't hardly see the little man, but then he would talk to the little man. He'd say, little man, I just want you to know that I understand that you can't see me right now. That the snow is kind of keeping you from seeing me. Uh, little man, I know that your life seems 
like out of control. You don't know where you are, what you're going to do, how you're going to survive. But little man, I want you to know something. Listen, I am strong enough to hold you. And I will hold you until that storm passes. I will hold you until that snow stops. I will hold you until you can look at me and see me in my eyes. God's promise to you is the same thing. He is strong enough to hold you. He is strong enough to keep you, even in the worst of your times. God says, I'll deliver you. Maybe here on earth, maybe in heaven, but I will deliver you. And God says, I am strong enough and I love you enough to always hold you. So we're going to show you the last clip of the movie. Brittany now has um, been tremendously encouraged and blessed by her church and her mom and dad, her youth pastor. And there's a tsunami on the island uh, in Hawaii and, and um, she doesn't have her arm now, but she's learning how to, because she has received so much comfort and encouragement from those around her, from God and from those around her, she's trying to figure out how to give away that kind of encouragement and comfort to someone else. Let's take a look at this. a kid to surf would teach me that surfing isn't the most important thing in the world and that something else is love bigger than any tidal wave more powerful than any fear would you bow your heads with me father how do we go from um, being in despair to actually offering someone else hope How do we go from being discouraged to offering someone that is really hurting themselves a word of encouragement? How do we comfort? Father, you have told us in your word that when we have received comfort from the Father, 
when we embrace that which you have given us, recognizing that you are always with us, that you never let us go. When we realize that, Father, then we are free to help others. My prayer, Father, for these weeks is that as we open the word each and every week, that you would encourage us, that you would bring us comfort, and that you would help us to know that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, will always stand beside us. We pray your blessing now, Father, as we finish this service and we go into our world to bring hope and light to all those who will hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we encourage you to come back each week as we look at this amazing book called Second Corinthians. Um, we're going to take uh, an offering this morning. Uh, some of you are new. We don't want your money, but everyone else who is here, we ask you to give generously and sacrificially to the work of Hope Covenant Church. Let's all stand and sing that. Even, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your perfect love is casting out fear.